The following is a conversation. It has the features of any conversation, such as imperfectly expressed thoughts, ill-considered opinions, and the notions of several sleep-deprived brains. Try not to get your stethoscope in a twist about it. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Coat Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, the show that gives you an inside look at medical school from the students eating them pancakes. A production of the University of Iowa Carver College Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. With me today in the SCP studio, a woman filled with fantastical and practical knowledge of the intellectual arts, M2 Maddie Fitzhugh. Wow, that was so nice. Hey. <laughs> His ideas are beyond the Orphic. It's M2 Jacob Hansen. Hey, Dave. Good to be back. A uh, man who fully grasps the hidden secrets of intellection. It's M4 Mason LaMarche. That's me. That sounds about right. Yeah. And his understanding <laughs> is beyond mortal Ken. It's new co-host and PA2 Mark Schmidt. Nice to be on here. Thank junior. You. I didn't want to leave out the junior because it's everywhere when I look you up. <laughs> Mark Schmidt Jr. I mean, we had to pay homage to the senior. He, he did a great job, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Mark. Will you share with us some of your understandings of the mystical world today? Well, I've all caught up on WandaVision and Doctor Strange, so mm-hmm. there's a lot mm-hmm. going on in the mystical arts these yeah. days. Yeah. You know, well, for instance, what drives people to cook chicken and nighttime cold medicine? I mean, that that might be something. <sighs> I think should. the when you're hungry after a long day of studying, yeah. but you know you have to get to sleep because you got an early day the next day. You, you get your NyQuil in as you're getting your chicken in, so it, I think that's where the idea sparked from. It's best to concentrate your NyQuil your acetaminophen and your succinyl whatever whatever the stuff that makes you sleepy it's best to concentrate that a lot and then drink all of it yeah not in the chicken yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't suggest you guys are aware of this yeah this thing it's on the bottle of nyquil like when you cook with chicken to make sure to check the internal temperature <laughs> yes and <laughs> just, to be, just to be safe <laughs> yeah the fda is totally on board that's important you know there is uh, you know listeners if you i don't know what rock you would have to be hiding under to not know about the recent fda's warning against the night the nyquil chicken challenge but yeah they warned earlier this week that you shouldn't do that but it turns out that Nobody's done that until the FDA warned people not to do that. Or at least it wasn't a viral trend of people talking about it until the FDA warned people not to do that. And the FDA warned people not to do that on the basis of a 2017 Twitter post, I believe, that showed somebody cooking chicken in NyQuil. But, you know, there's no evidence that anybody has ever done this before this year anyway, so... There's a, a name for this phenomenon where you call something to attention, and no one was doing it before, but now you made it a problem. The Streisand effect. Yes, there we go. Yeah. That is what is happening right now. And that's with. what I'm doing right now. That's what I'm... <laughs> do. I don't recommend... Look, listeners, I don't recommend that you do these these things. I'm just, you know, participating in the culture. <laughs> that's the problem, Dave. Yeah. Oh. I mean, you got to do it for the clicks, right? <laughs> That's what you do it for. Maybe you have to be responsible with this platform that you've been given. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The responsible thing to do for me is to say, you know, don't do don't do this. 
Don't listen to me. Don't listen to us when we talk about things that you shouldn't do. Mark, for reals, you're a PA. Yep. PA2. Have you started clinical stuff yet? That's coming up, right? No, yeah. We, just like these guys. Just same, like these yeah. We'll M2s start here. when the M2s start and beginning of January. Uh-huh. What's it been like studying with the, the MD students? It's wonderful. Honestly, you really don't know there's a difference between us unless, like, you know. Isn't. Yeah, no. We're learning all the same things. Yeah. We've taken all the same classes. So it's it's really 100% integrated, actually. We're the only PA program that is 100% integrated for the didactic portion so it's cool yeah we're I, I like learning with these guys and gals is it like these guys in that you're halfway through your second year you go off and start doing clinicals yep okay. yep and then we'll have we only have one year of rotations um, okay, i think right, there's right. one less core rotation that we have to do but our one year rotations too is not confined to iowa so there's definitely sites all over the states that i was i'm hoping to get we get our schedules next month supposedly hopefully <laughs> waiting for that what do you any any thoughts about where you want to go with this man well i'm really interested in emergency medicine and there's okay. an emergency medicine rotation in hawaii so that'd be pretty sick yeah. oh, there's oh, okay. a surgery in vermont which would be really cool and then quite a few like ortho family med things out in oregon and montana so all those seem pretty exciting peds in albuquerque new mexico that'd yeah. be fun what were we doing before med school I was I worked as a nursing assistant in the ER, ER here at UIHC for two years. Oh, okay. That okay. was very exciting. I got my love for the adrenaline rush, and you never know what's coming through those doors. So, Maybe very exciting. Who's eating chicken? In <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's hope. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Hope to see you many more times before you disappear. Thank you for having me. I'll try to be on. Last week, we spoke sort of generally and at length on how medical students and PA students at different levels decide what to focus on in their studies and how they make those choices. You know, how much do you study? How much do you recreate? How much do you, how, what are the implications of those choices? This week, I really want to sort of drill down into the studying part of that because I know that's what you guys love and, and we should talk about only things that you love on this podcast. What I want to look at today is is particularly how you take in the information and park it in your brain case, how that changes over the years that you progress from undergrad to preclinical and then ultimately to clinical student. There are a sort of the main kinds of things that you learn, you know, facts and concepts and procedures and sort of information about what it is you're becoming. Those are the sort of, I think, four different things that you learn. So in the beginning, like when you were an undergrad, what was your main, how did you study? How did you cram it all in? What, what were you doing in particular to learn things? I remember being super inefficient and just like rereading notes. And then it wasn't until you get to like med school where you kind of get pushed to a new level. You realize that's not like the best way or the only way to study. So I think I got away with a lot of bad habits in undergrad, mm. even though at the time I felt like, Oh wow, I'm doing such a good job. I'm studying so hard. Med school really kind of, it's like the the next step up. It's the major leagues of studying. 
Yeah, definitely. As the baby of the group here, that's I'm closest to it. But yeah, it just seemed like you could get away with doing less back in the day, definitely. Of course, the course loads were a lot less. There were one thing that now being in medical school that I kind of appreciated was like learning multiple subjects. And so you could kind of break up your studying, but it just seemed like the ways that you could study back in the day, whether that be for me, yes, it was like writing notes, rewriting notes, looking them over, call it good, go and pass your tests were just so much easier than it is now where you like really to understand the whole concept and drinking from the higher fire hose or eating the giant stack of pancakes or however you want to describe it there's just like so much more of like of taking it on yourself at least in my opinion to like really try to integrate all these like isolated ideas and really try to see it from like thirty thousand feet up instead of just like a goes to b b goes to c like what like we did back in the day yeah i think for me i was a huge flashcard girly in undergrad And now I think just the level of like what we're expected to know is less of like just brute memorization and you kind of have to like understand things more and be able to reason through things. So that has not been as useful. Okay, so I'm assuming that anatomy, for instance, and pharmacology, and I'm sure there are others, are mostly memorization. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Is that? Yeah. I will contend that anatomy, you can make it a little more efficient if you understand physics, right? Because there's like this origin and insertion. And when you understand lever mechanics and whatnot, like I think it becomes less of like, oh, I remember it goes into here and here as much as, okay, I know the this action is involved with this muscle and therefore I can infer, you know, where's the closest spot it's origin and insertion from. So I think like it gets kind of the rap as you just pure memorize, but I think it's a, a class where you can get away with a little bit more critical thinking to kind of lighten that, that like, it, of course it's gonna be some memorization, but I'm um, just little tips and tricks that kind of keep you away from just dryly memorizing those facts. Is that, does that make sense to you guys? Is that what you did? Or? So I'm bad at physics, so I did not <laughs> do that, but yeah, no, definitely being able to like I would kind of, for anatomy, like group things in certain categories. And I think that definitely helps like just narrow down the amount of like discrete knowledge you have to know, I guess. What what categories? Well, just like for the muscles, I guess, for example, like just knowing like the action of a group of muscles rather than like knowing the action for every single muscle. Dr. Hoffman puts together these amazing worksheets. He's our anatomy professor called like legs and arms of steel and stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, and yeah. he like puts a masterclass on that of like, you know, everything in this compartment is going to have similar innovation, similar blood supply and similar movement. So if you memorize that compartment, at the very least on a test, you're like over halfway there and you can kind of, you know, tease out what specific muscle they might be talking about. But yeah, that grouping thing is huge, particularly for like musculoskeletal anatomy. I'm going to hop in with what Mason just said there, that grouping it by those compartments and how like one compartment had this nerve supply and this blood supply and then kind of relying on that groups you to like a handful of muscles you could choose from. And then you use the mnemonics from the tutor groups that really helps narrow down one or two of like what muscles you might be looking at. So, yeah, agreed. Yeah, going back, Dr. Hoffman, if you're a fan of the show, big fan of you. (laughs) No, honestly, like all the anatomy professors that we had, I just thought were like some of the best like people that were there teaching us throughout, at least so far. One thing that I really appreciate about anatomy, because it was very intimidating for me first coming in, never having taken it before, was just like, you know, it's this big, scary class, all these different, you know, all the intricacies of the body just in just a couple short months but one thing and maybe this is just because we had the deeded body ceremony last friday it was just really nice to see it in real life netters gail 
whatever online resource of your choosing is out there is great and all, but actually being able to see it in real life for me really helps solidify things. And once I finally got myself to lab outside of lab and outside of class is when I I really was able to solidify those things and just kind of remembering that like this is our first patient and like they have so, oh so much to teach us and that is when it really started like clicking and making sense for me you know there's a lot of you know there's this sort of general I don't know push or something I don't know if it's a push or if it's just a, a we're moving sort of slowly in that direction of virtue dissection in anatomy. And I know that I'm sure that probably a lot of old school professors are not into it, not just because, you know, oh, new technology, we don't like that, but because there's something, I don't know, there's there's something very important about the act of dissecting in medicine. Is that something you sort of experienced? I think, I know we have one of those tables here now. I haven't had a chance to to play around with it, but I think what we lose in that oftentimes is A, the the realness of the person in front of us. Like this is someone's, you know, a gift that they've given to us. It is their real body they left behind. And there's a really kind of sacred privilege to that. And then you get to appreciate that everyone's body's so different. I mean, the cadavers we work with, some have surgeries, they have anatomical variants, and you appreciate that. As you go around the room, not only were these people all different people when they were alive, but their bodies tell different stories. When you have one standardized model, I worry about, you know, we are teaching towards this absolute norm and not allowing us to have that hands-on connection with with feeling the muscles and feeling the nerves. I think one of the ways I learned how to distinguish nerves was how they actually felt in my fingers compared to arteries and veins. Um, and while going someone going to radiology, I won't be feeling those nerves and arteries, I think there's something that translated into my mind from those tactile sensations that helped me appreciate them more in imaging. So yeah, the, the, I think the more uh, senses that you use to learn something, probably the more integrated, whatever you're learning yeah. is. And having spent four months on autopsy pathology, I feel like my anatomy is so much stronger having worked with, you know, in that service to those patients because you spend so much time intimately with their anatomy and it's definitely changed even beyond we get in cadaver lab. I recommend it for all med students to check that rotation out. But you really get this opportunity to appreciate the anatomy that you're then taking care of the rest of your you know time. Right. And so, did the techniques that you use change after you began medical school? Like, what did you start doing after medical school that wasn't just looking at notes and and rereading them? One thing for anatomy, so I also with Jacob and Mason like was just rereading my notes and maybe rewriting my notes and calling that good. For really going in and doing practice questions, I know for anatomy specifically, we used the back of the book for BRS anatomy and having just the different scenarios and walking through and like it says you get stabbed here, you have to think, okay, what muscles are affected, what blood supply is that, what nerve, and like where do those all connect? And so really having those questions already like made and making you go one or two steps more than just identifying what they're talking about applying that i think that helped push me into getting those practice question questions in to develop the one or two steps more yeah kind of along the same lines as practice questions i think something that i really changed was going to tutor groups and like relying on others to like help push me to like learn the things that are important because i think especially with tutor groups like having those resources from people who have taken the class before they know what kind of parts are like quote like high yield versus low yield and I think really being able to like tease that out and then 
also a lot of them have practice questions in their sessions is really something that I have used a lot. Yeah, I wanted to piggyback off what Maddie said and this idea of like high yield versus low yield concepts was just a game changer for me. Yeah, how do you figure that out though? (laughs) Your tutors. (laughs) Vijay puts pictures of Stella next to things that are high yield. We love Stella. Who's Stella? Stella's a corgi. Oh, okay. And we are big corgi fans here, so it worked very well. But for me, just like in undergrad, I just felt like everything was fair game. So it's just like, oh, this little discreet thing that they said just in passing, like in between slides. Yeah, it could be tested on it. But just here, maybe just because of the sheer volume of information that we're learning, at least for me, that is just definitely not feasible anymore. Is this a flaw in how undergrads are taught or is it just... I mean, I mean, undergrad. I remember that too distinctly from, you know, 35 years ago <laughs> that I had no idea what was important in what I was being taught. I mean, perhaps it is a flaw, but also like the requirements and what is expected of us now versus what was expected of us four years ago, I think it's fair to say was a little bit different. Yeah, there's so much to learn. I yeah. think part of it is because for us anyways... For each lecture, we only have about two questions on the test per lecture. And so I think like really being able to look at the lecture and be like, they wouldn't waste a question to ask us this random detail. Whereas undergrad, you had multiple, or at least for me anyways, I had lots of questions about each lecture. So I think it is potentially a fault of many undergrad programs, particularly at bigger universities you have professors who they're not necessarily taught in teaching and educational techniques or how they should format their lectures i mean we've all had good and bad professors but i still tutor undergraduate courses and as i work with students i think that's one of the things uh, i'm able to share with them is like what are these high yields big point topics because it's really easy to get lost in the weeds of i want to understand this tiny little detail it's like well it may not be worth your time if it's not coming to you you know you got to make sure you cover all your bases first then if there's time you can kind of shore up those small details but it's definitely focusing on what are the big takeaways and i think that's something that's lost in undergraduate education shortcoats if you're enjoying our conversation today i'd be grateful if you'd let people know by posting a story on instagram or facebook or tweeting about us and don't forget to tag us in your post thank you you've mentioned tutors but we also do things like, you know, and I think most schools do, small groups, simulated patients, and then, of course, as we mentioned before, clinical, the, the sort of early clinical experiences. How do those factor into this discussion? Well, we haven't had, a, at least for Maddie, Mark, and I, we haven't had a lot of, like, these clinical experiences. They, yeah, they do early clinical do experiences. Some. Yeah, we like, still do have some. And the one that really jumped out at me was last spring, I got to go to cardiothoracic surgery for my ECE, mm. which was a really wonderful experience. But the one thing that jumped out to me, it was just, like, yes, getting so lost in, like, pathology and genetics and just, like, things that were just, like, way beyond, like, over my head, especially like in the textbook side of things, but sitting down, performing a physical exam on my patient and actually hearing my first heart murmur really kind of solidified kind of the like underlying processes and not just like, this is not just like a disease process. This is someone affecting someone's grandma. This is affecting someone's loved one. So moving um, from the abstract to the more personal. It, more personal. And that really stuck with me a lot more than just as much as I love it, Stella on its life. Well, that brings up something I was going to, ask you mason which is when did you start realizing that the things that you'd learned you know in your first year of medical school maybe uh, some metabolic pathway or 
you know, some some esoteric bit of knowledge that you thought, why am I learning this? Was there was there an occasion when you were like, oh, oh, now I know why I was taught this. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some where it's like some obscure fact comes around and you're like, oh my goodness, I remember this gene name. I don't know if it really is going to matter to this patient. It doesn't change their course. I don't have a therapy to offer them because of it, but hey, I remember it. And maybe maybe it was just on my mind enough to help with the diagnosis. You know, saw a patient fairly recently who was having kind of limb girdle, like more proximal weakness. The only thing I could think of was polymyalgia rheumatica, which I feel like is not like this most common diagnosis, but I think preclinical, like we learned about like just enough and like, MOHD Keystone, where it was at least at the like my fingertips, where I could be like, you triggered something. Yeah, I don't remember yeah. anything else about this, but there's something about this this proximal feature in this name. I can go look it up and explore it. And sometimes you do find some gold there, and sometimes it's like, nope, completely not enough. But that's part of making a differential diagnosis is ruling things in and out. So there's definitely been times it's it's kicked up. There's definitely been things I've learned that have not come up yet in my practice. I may never come up, but can you think of any that do we uh, want to do we want to do that? I've not run into any glycogen storage disorders yet, but I, I know like they come around every once in a while. You get a patient with Fabry disease or whatnot. So uh, I think that's a, that must be the hard thing about learning all this stuff is 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 I guess maybe knowing that you may never run across it, but when you do, or if you do, it might be helpful to have this thing tickle the back of your head. Yeah, I was watching, I think it was it was a show on Netflix, like Diagnosis, I think is what it was called. And this one patient, like it eventually got down that she had like a G6PD deficiency that was like severely symptomatic for her. And I was like, and G6PD is this enzyme, which I think is in glycolysis. Please, M2s, correct me if I'm wrong, because it's been a while since I've thought about that. Honestly, I don't know. I just... a couple of blank looks. Whereas enough where I'd watched it when I was like an M1 or M2, I was like, how did the doctor not know about this? Like, I just learned about this pathway yesterday. And now I think if I were to watch that episode again, I'd be like, yeah, I'd miss that. I have no clue what you're... I forgot all those pathways. So I know that there's for the right person... It's really important you have that familiarity. I just think it's really tough to, I mean, you can't predict, especially not knowing what fields we'll go into, you know. If I was into pediatrics, I might be a little bit more tuned into those enzymatic pathways, but I'm going to a field where I'm going to look at pictures most of my day, so I won't run to those patients too frequently. So are you telling me that you couldn't recite the Krebs cycle to me, I, Mason? <laughs> I'm telling you right now, I can do parts of it because I just tutored it last week. But give me one more week and I would not be able to. Poor Krebs cycle. Uh, it always gets shit on. <laughs> Some would say it's pretty Krebby. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. Is Happy okay. back on the show? All right. Well, a common comment I see on evaluations is something like, and I'm, your clinical evaluations in particular, is he takes information he learned one day and immediately applies it the next. Is there something you do to make sure that happens? Or is it just, you know, happenstance? I think it's a bit happenstance. And it's also like a lot of our patients, common things are common. So you'll see one condition one day and see someone with the same condition the next day. Or even like you're following up the same patient. So there is definitely for those really common situations, times that you you should Try to find some way to integrate that knowledge pretty quickly. Otherwise, you're going to lose it. So, like, if you learn about, you know, some pearl about diabetes management, ideally, the next day you're going to try and apply it and say, yes or no, this doesn't apply to this patient. And it's or nice do you go home and, like, look something, like, look it up and, and try to figure it out? I, I think so. I think that's good practice. Everyone's got different strategies for how they study during clinical year. I personally try and take about 15 to 20 minutes to look up one fact and kind of deep dive it each night. I don't do too much more than that. 
especially now as a fourth year. But I feel like that's just enough to really kind of take that one pearl, build into something a little more meaningful. And then I try to apply it the next time I can. Sometimes it's learning something a little more esoteric and it's like, okay, I may not get to apply that tomorrow. But I try to focus on things that I'm going to use repeatedly. And, you know, I figure those esoteric things will come in time and residency and fellowship. One, one sort of metacognitive bit of knowledge is the culture of medicine. Things that aren't explicitly taught, but we learn anyway. The so-called hidden curriculum. These may be the easiest things to learn because nobody's actually testing you on them or quizzing you on them, but you're very strongly motivated to learn them, I think. Can Can you think of hidden curriculum stuff? that you have learned mason i think you learn this a lot in like surgical teams Mm because there's very clear hierarchies what i learned as a med student is you should have every bandage supply on you things that you're going to need to change dressings you should have wipes to be able to clean wounds off you should be anticipating what needs to happen what the resident's going to need to change and dress this wound that's kind of just an expectation that no one tells you about until one day the fellow turns and looks you and says do you have a rap and you're like no, I don't. No one told me I should do this. I'm sure what that is. But. Not sure what that is. You walk <laughs> around to a nurse and pray for help, and eventually one of them is kind enough to get you all the dressing supplies you need. But it's definitely. I know something. sometimes I get that comment too. Like when I read, because it's like he, she always had the stuff ready for us, and yeah. that's like okay. And it's something where it's like yes, it's not like a cognitively difficult task, but there is no better way to get better evals than to be prepared for surgical rounds with like all the dressings you need. Like I bought a fanny pack just to fit everything, and I got teased for the fanny pack until I had all the syringe flushes ready to go, and I had all the tape ready and scissors, and um, it's those little things that you should pass that fanny pack down. Yeah, uh, we'll just everyone just like embroider your name on it because I'm not going to use it eventually. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I think it's things like that where you, you pick them up over time, but no one explicitly like they're not going to sit you down and be like, you do this or you're not going to have an M2 lecture of here's how you change a wound. Here's all our dressing options. We don't get a ton of that practical stuff, which I think would be kind of a dry lecture anyways. So what about the culture of medicine, the, the how to be how to act like a doctor? I think it kind of falls in the same boat of by carrying the dressing. There's a certain claim about your status and hierarchy is you're not essential enough to be involved in the direct care of this patient like as far as like telling the the plan and moving forward so oftentimes you stay behind while the fellow is moving on to the next thing and every team operates a little differently but usually there's one person in charge and they're going to keep pushing things forward and everyone else kind of just falls in line so i don't see a lot of times where you have like particularly in rounds where it's a more fast-paced environment on surgical teams there's not much discussion or debate that may happen later with the attendings but i think you learn you know whether it's right or not as a med student to kind of be quiet until you're called upon at least it's how i felt it maybe that's me being a little bit shy but i'm not quicked off from my thoughts unless someone's asking me and then i'll i don't know sometimes i sometimes i read a comment that's like you know too quiet i don't know if that would I don't know if those were among your evaluations, but, but, you know, like, you know, he's too quiet or he needs to, you know, I know he knows things. He needs to, you know, sort of bring this, you know, open up a little more on rounds or, or whatever. And I, I, I get it. I don't love those comments because I think people vary in how open they are or how talkative they are, but you know, they, they come out. And I think the problem that's they're trying to address is we don't know how much, you know, until you open your mouth. Yeah that's the problem is i'm on a new team every two to four weeks and i'm trying to figure out what everyone's about i'm I'm trying to sit there and say do they or do they not want me to be heavily involved yeah. in vocalizing am i going to step on toes or not um wh- how does this team orchestrate and it's like residents bounce around in their services but they're largely within similar departments mm-hmm. or whatnot as med students you know one week we're in surgery and the next week we're dropped in the child's psych and it's like 
these are two very different cultures and we're just kind of expected to make an impression within two to four weeks, get these evaluations from people we maybe work with for less than two hours total. And then we get an eval, like read more or you need to talk more. It's like, <laughs> I don't know you. So, <laughs> sure. so yeah, those evaluations are kind of like always tough, but I think I take them with a grain of salt. Like, okay, unless I really spent meaningful time with you, your evaluation is just going to kind of be noise to me versus someone who I spent a lot of time with. It's, if they have some negative criticism, I'm going to take that to heart because I know that they saw me progress. Guys, evaluations are so much fun. You're going to love it. I didn't quite realize how many you're going to have to do, but it's it's kind of an awkward dance you do where you're like, will you evaluate me? Will you give me a grade? I know he didn't talk ever, but I need this to pass this course. So that's a tricky dance to navigate. Eventually, you just stop asking and just start sending evals because you realize it's part of their job. Like Their job is to evaluate you and teach you, so you should kind of hold them to that standard of, hey, I need you guys to to evaluate me so I can become a better physician. Yeah, I guess I guess the weird thing about evaluations and determining, again, what's high yield and, and low yield is, you know, sometimes you get back evaluations that seem to comment on your personality versus your competence and things like, you know, it's too quiet is, is one of those things. And I guess that's one of those things that you just sort of have to take with a grain of salt. Like, okay, I don't know what to do with, I don't know how to fix my personality, but fair enough, you know? Yeah. And like, I'm a white dude, like, I'm not going to deny there's going to be, you know, implicit racism and sexism that exists in some of those comments on people's personalities of yeah, know, the yeah. words they used to describe Sometimes I people. wonder, like, what, what, yeah, yeah where so, is this, like, where's the specific thing coming from? Exactly. So I think all those evaluations, you need to be really careful with taking them too, too much to heart. They are not you, just like your step score is not you. And pre-med your mcat score is not who you are which is kind of all this piece of data that you got to learn to incorporate is it high yield or low yield or or no yield well i hope that as you young whippersnappers you young m2s and pa2s go into the into into clinics you can get some good comments rather than just keep reading and and for god's sake you know when you're when it's time for you to evaluate people maybe maybe don't don't say keep reading. <laughs> I don't know. But do you have to put something in that field? I'm not really sure. You do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it will let you submit without. I've had residents <clears throat> be very upset about that. But that's why I think keep reading is the I don't have anything to say in the to improve box. So, yeah, you could learn more, I guess, which is fair. Short Coats, we love to hear from you no matter what it's about. So call us at 347-SHORT-CT with questions, shower thoughts, complaints about your situation, whatever you like. We'll talk about it on the show. As an internet content creator, I can tell you that even though I don't need them in the strictest sense, I do want clicks. You know what I'm saying? I do want clicks. I do want people to click on my social media posts that we work so hard on in the editing process to uh, get people to, you know, subscribe to the podcast. And uh, I guess at its heart, it is a, it's basically a struggle for relevance and esteem, maybe, you know, the goal of which is to build up a resonant story around each of us here while demystifying this med school journey we're on. And I found a German folktale that also exists in several cultures in various forms that I'd like to share with you for your reactions. I think it speaks to this need for relevance and esteem and other things that come along with being a physician. I will say that folk tales are often a little or a lot bonkers. I don't know how many folk tales you've read in your life, but you know, you've consumed one or two. 
What with all the possible translation errors and revisions over time and poor character development by the authors, they're interesting. Um, Are we ready for this? Let's do it, Dave. Bring it on. Once upon a time, there was a poor peasant named Crab who drove his two oxen to town with a load of wood to sell to a doctor. The doctor, who, of course, had plenty of a scratch, paid Crab just as a big dinner was being served. Which, kind of a, maybe a power move on the part of the doctor, I think. Crab took one look at the doctor's dinner and thought, Hey, I want to be a doctor. Is this my pre-med, like, is this my my personal statement for med school? Because this is really kind of how it's shaping up right now. (laughs) You should write a folktale. Yes, pre, ah, this is great. Personal statement gold. Write a folktale about being a doctor uh, poor peasant boy just wanting some food <laughs> that's, all I, oh that's all i want yeah you know as a not doctor i can this is this is something i relate to you know you sort of look at a doctor's dinner or their house or their car or whatever and you you go and you know and then you look at your hyvee brand chicken nuggies and your corolla and you're you're like i want a doctor's dinner you know what i'm saying metaphorically he stood there for a while probably drooling over whatever fancy you know flambe or I don't know, the doctors eat. Doctors eat flambe all the time. Sure. Pretty sure. Hospital chicken tenders, flambe. (laughs) And then asked if he could be a doctor too. And the doctor said, basically, sure, why not? No big deal. Won't take much time at all. What do I have to do? Asked Crab. The doctor, probably between mouthfuls of creme brulee and giant turkey legs, said, first of all, buy yourself an ABC book. One that has a picture of a rooster on the front. Second, sell your wagon. And use your two oxen to buy yourself some clothing and other things that doctors use. That's like M1 when we have to buy an otoscope that we're not going to use, <laughs> an ophthalmoscope we won't use. Yeah. yeah, this is... I understand why you picked this for, for SPA medical students. It just, it just rang true to me, you know. Get a reflex hammer. You're definitely going to need a reflex hammer. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I use it all the time. Uh-huh. It's my stethoscope, but yeah. Third... Have yourself a sign painted with the words, I am Dr. Know-All, and nail it above your door to your house. So that's what Crab did. He got his ABCs book. He sold some stuff to get some nice clothes and doctor doctor things, and he hung out a shingle. He was a doctor. That's crazy. I can't believe he made this cycle after this, too. Yeah, I mean, this makes total sense, right? Medical educators talk about the doubling time of medical knowledge, right? Being measured in exponentially shorter and shorter periods. So, you know few years ago, the doubling time was, I don't know, I can't remember what the exact figure is, like 10, it was, it was like a year, and now it's like, you know, five minutes. But back then, we didn't know shit about doctoring, you know, we knew nothing. Rub a mash of like chicken grease and mummy dust all over yourself and you'll be fine. So, I guess it's valid. Not long after that, some money was stolen from a great and wealthy nobleman. Someone told him about a doctor know-all who lived in such and such a village and who must know where the money had gone. Look, I'll, I'll give you the this advice for free future doctors you know things about medicine you don't know i don't know how much you know about crimes i don't but i have friends who think i know a lot about things that aren't in medicine and it's like i no, we don't get taught that actually i know less about the world now because <laughs> brain space is occupied by other things so yeah you, you don't know anything about you know crime you don't know anything about legislation Dr. Oz, you don't know anything about <laughs> MMA fighting, Dr. Mike. You heard about this, right? 
that I have not heard no. about. The YouTube's Dr. Mike is, is, is now going into his second fight, this time with an MMA fighter whose name escapes me for the moment. I mean, it's a charity thing, so I get it. But also, like, don't be, do something else for charity. I, I don't know if I want to get the shit kicked out of me for clicks. Yeah, and, that, and charity that's bold yeah. quick plug do the dvip bench press competition <laughs> i know like it's so you know don't ha- always don't right away hang up a sign above your door that literally says i know all the things i feel like that's a branding issue so the nobleman had his carriage hitched up rode out to the village and asked crab if he were dr know-it-all D- dr know-all yes i am then you must come with me and recover my stolen money Yes, but my wife, Greta, must come along, too. Now, I know what you're thinking. Greta must be Greta. It's G-R-E-T-E, so I assume it's pronounced Greta. Must be very important to the story. No one else in the story is mentioned by name, after all, so far. Not our hero, not the nobleman, not the original doctor, nobody. The nobleman agreed and had them take their places in his carriage. They rode away together. They arrived at the nobleman's court just at mealtime, and the nobleman invited him to eat. Yes, but include my wife, Greta, Crab replied. And he and the two of them sat down behind the table. When the first servant brought out a platter of fine food, the peasant nudged his wife and said, Greta, that's the first one, meaning the meal's first course. I don't know where this is going, but I'm getting really excited for it. So, I mean, Dr. Noel is living up to his name. Yeah. He's mansplaining dinner <laughs> to his wife, literally, <laughs> at this point. However, the servant thought that he meant, that's the first thief. And because that is indeed what he was, he took fright. And outside, he said to his comrades, the doctor knows everything. It's going to go badly for us. He said that I'm the first one. You're criminal masterminds here first sign of trouble they crack (laughs) the second one did not want to go inside at all but finally he had to and when he went and when he entered the peasant nudged his wife and said greta that's the second one the this servant took fright as well and went outside it did not go any better for the third one once again the peasant said greta that's the third one my heart goes out to greta She's a long-suffering, I bet she's a long-suffering, because I bet even back Crab was like pulling a cart of wood around and selling it to people, he still mansplained things to Greta. No, Greta, you see, it's it's a non-fungible token. Oh, so yeah. what happens <laughs> is I give them the wood. And, <laughs> and then there's a list that says you own this piece of wood yes. and therefore it's yeah. important. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. There's an equation, see. <laughs> oh, my The fourth one brought in a covered platter and the nobleman told the doctor that he should demonstrate his art by guessing what it contained. Crab looked at the platter, having no idea what was under the cloche and seeing no way out of his dilemma, muttered to himself, oh, poor Crab. Turns out the platter contained crabs. Wow. Plot twist. This is quite the coincidence. I do wish that the peasant's name was SpaghettiOs. (laughs) <laughs> I think that would be pretty sweet. Hearing this, the noble nobleman called out, if he knows that, then he must know who has the money as well. The servant freaked out and motioned to the doctor to go outside. There are there all four servants confessed to him that they had stolen the money. They offered to give it all to him and a handsome sum in addition if he would not turn them in. Otherwise, they would hang. They showed him where the money was hidden. 
The doctor was satisfied with all this, and he went back inside and sat down again at the table. My lord, he said, now I will look in my book to see where the money is hidden. However, the fifth servant climbed into the stove in order to hear if the doctor knew anything else. The stove? How do you climb into how do you climb unnoticed into a stove that must be in the room with the the nobleman and the doctor? How do you Is this not a cooking stove but like a heating stove? Does oh, it matter? Well I mean <laughs> it's, it's on though, but <laughs> if it's kind of resting for a moment, maybe. Mm. I don't know, it doesn't say. Translations, man. It's a little light on, on details here. Meanwhile, the doctor leafed back and forth in his book looking for a picture of the rooster. The tale says nothing about why he was looking for the rooster. But I'm sure the author, I'm sure the, the doctor know-it-all, Dr. Know-all knew what he was doing. Also, the rooster is supposed to be in the front of the book, according to the original doctor who said to get this book. So I don't know, might want might to check there. He got the wrong edition. <laughs> Page numbers are all messed up. Not finding the rooster, he muttered to himself, I know that you're in there. Come on out. <laughs> the man in the stove thought that the doctor was talking to him and terrified, he jumped out saying, this man knows everything. Then Dr. Noel showed the nobleman where the money was, but he did not tell who had stolen it. Thus, he received a large reward from each side and became a famous man. The end... It was so much easier to be a doctor at some point. <laughs> yeah, you just had to say things. Yeah. You just had to, which I guess is a little bit like, uh, as we said, you know, the quiet ones get dinged, but the people who talk, maybe not so much. So just talk during your. Until you make it? Maybe. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah. This, is, this is the central, I feel like this is the central thing of the story. Like, you don't have to know things, you just have to pretend you know things. <laughs> and you're good to go. Do you, do you you fake it? You fake it a lot in in clinicals. Who's going to listen to this? <laughs> I mean, I think there's a part of medical education where you feel performative. You feel like you're faking, like I'm pretending to be a doctor right now. But I think it's different from obviously this scenario of I'm just this person got like lucky twelve times in a row. Versus medicine, like you you eventually got to know something. You can't just call yourself doctor. I mean, you can if you got enough clout. A la Dr. Oz, but I mean, he's a cardiothoracic surgeon. He had to get through medical school. Yeah, and and a, a very difficult residency and fellowship. I'm sure at one point he was wonderful. He knew um, something at those specific subject domains <laughs> and nothing else. So this is the Dunning Kruger effect. Is that what this is called? Where where people think they know more than they do, and so they mm-hmm. until they get past a certain threshold. Until they get past a certain threshold. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think you do kind of fake it a little bit as. As early doctors as you're kind of, maybe we call it imposter syndrome too, where you're just trying to play what you think you should be. This person thought he should be a know-it-all, wise fortune teller. I think we do the same thing in some extent. Is that to be avoided or is it, is it all right? I don't know. I don't think it's to be, I think there's, I think there's some positives to it. Like you at some point have to be a doctor. Like that's kind of why we're doing all this. So Mm -hmm. I think one thing that I've found helpful for me personally is when I'm doing things, I'm always trying to look at like, what's the next thing I want to be. So when I started doing rotations, it was like, okay, what are the fourth year students doing? What should I be like kind of modeling and aspire to? And now it's kind of me looking at the interns going, what are the interns doing? What should I be doing to try and like pretend I'm one of them? Cause I think eventually then you blink and you are that person. And so I think there's something to be said about faking it, not faking your knowledge. And yeah. You don't want to fake people. your knowledge, but yeah, but I think it's like faking yourself into like 
I can do this. Yeah, I think that's that was probably one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got. One of my mentors growing up, I met when I was just 18, when I was here as an undergrad, and they had shared with me that they often feel like that, and they are now one of the deans here, and they're like, you know, they look all put together, and they're like, you know, leading all of us and making these grand decisions, but, you know, at times, you know, just the vast of what we're supposed to know, what we're supposed to do can become overwhelming, and sometimes that's just like, it is really nice to be able to, even if you're not putting on that mask and just at least giving your best shot and more times than not you know that momentum will carry you forward and how that is just at least for me that has gotten me through a lot of challenging times in the past three semesters and i'm sure it will continue when i'm trying to be a mason and an intern and (laughs) an attending and whatever else we aspire to be did you ever get in trouble for not knowing something mason Define trouble. Like I've never felt like my career was like jeopardized, but I've definitely been like, I can't believe you don't know this. Why don't you know this? Mm-hmm. Uh, was it justified? I I think I'm gonna say no. Like one time I got asked to surgery what an ACT was, and I was like high school test. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that was not what it was. I'm like okay, well you should know that. I was like, this was like my first rotation after like COVID break messed with our core year, and I was like okay. I don't know this. Sorry, but I I think my apologies. I will look it up immediately tonight. (laughs) I am inadequate, but sorry. So yeah, like that's happened, but I think that's kind of rare and usually maybe a little misdirected. Okay. Most times it's like, there's no way you could fake it anyway, really. Yeah. It's like, I think I just, my, my tip is always just stay really quiet until they know I don't know anything. Just don't give them the wrong answer, but just let let it sit there and then eventually be like you don't know it do you and then you just nod and <laughs> roll along. you are correct sir <laughs> I know nothing uh, well that's our show Mark Mason Maddie Jacob thank you for being on the show with me today and and what kind of know all would I be if I didn't thank you shortcoats for making us a part of your week if you're new and you like what you heard today follow the show wherever fine podcasts are available like Spotify Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts and even YouTube thank you to this week's producer Matt Engelkin and to this week's editors who I forgot to look up before the show (laughs) and there are literally just X's on my script good job Dave (laughs) I love you editors I really really do. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine, Student Government, and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. I'm Dave Etler saying don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week. Hi, short coats. Look, life in medical education Life in America, life in the world is often difficult, and I often wish I could help. All I have is this podcast, but in my wildest dreams, you have the support you need to lead a life of your choosing. You deserve to be happy, healthy, and successful in whatever ways you define those words. So if you need support because you've experienced racism, discrimination, harassment, mental health crises, I want you to be able to get the help that you need. And so I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some resources that you can use. But the bottom line is that for what it's worth, I see you. I know you're out there. I wish I could do more. Maybe I can in ways that I don't understand yet or know about. But I see you and I'm glad you're here and other people are too. 
The Short Code Podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com.